I'm here with Colin Hughes, a friend of the artist and poet David Jones. In 1979, Colin published the book David Jones, The Man Who Was On The Field, which is subtitled, in parenthesis, Straight Reporting. And in 1982, he published The Detailed History of the Battle, which is the culmination of Jones's poem, Mamet's Lloyd George's Welsh Army at the Battle of the Somme. Colin, how did you come to meet David Jones? In 1946, at the age of 18, I heard on the radio Douglas Cleverdon's dramatisation of In Parenthesis and was so bowled over by it that I listened again to a live repeat the following evening. Some of the images have remained in my mind's eye ever since, especially the attack on an unnamed wood which forms a climax. Some 20 years later, I found myself working as an administrator in the War Office in London and using its excellent library, I started, out of curiosity, to piece together some of the facts about the unit in which David Jones served. I took two days leave and visited the terrain over which the battle had been fought and took some photographs. I sent some of these to David Jones and received an instant reply by letter, the first of a number of long letters he wrote to me between then and his death five years later. He also phoned me from Harrow and arranged a visit. I took with me my paperback copy of In Parenthesis, which I had carried into the wood for him to inscribe. And that's where we first met. 1969, November, in Harrow. I was 41 years of age, Jones was 74. How would you describe him? I knew nothing about Jones when I first visited him, other than as the author of In Parenthesis. And I was somewhat in awe of his great learning as revealed in the footnotes to the book. And I was quite unaware of his fame as a painter. But he put me immediately at ease and showed me some of his paintings, dwelling for a long time on the details of a large watercolour called Tristan Ac Esselt. And he also showed me the sketches he had made in the Great War. He was a delightful person. He didn't talk down to me nor did we talk exclusively about in parentheses in the war. I remember him talking at great length about one of the dwindling native tribes in America. When he digressed, he always came back to the exact point of departure. He knew nothing at all about me, but because I once phoned him from the old Admiralty switchboard, he would refer to me as the young man from the Admiralty. <laughs> Some years later, his close friend, Rennie Haig, sent me extracts from letters Jones had written about my visits, and I was amazed at how accurately he had recorded what I said. Of course, we did discuss in parentheses and the characters and events portrayed within it, and at one point he said there was little in the book that was not straight reporting. Mm. How would you rate David Jones as a soldier? Throughout the war, David Jones was a private soldier, doing what he was told. In parenthesis, is for the most part a portrayal of his experiences in a mixed battalion of Welshmen and Londoners, of which he was an acute observer. He describes himself as an incompetent soldier, a parade ground's despair. But in parenthesis shows that he fitted in well. He portrays sympathetically those above him, Corporal Lewis, Sergeant Quilter, and particularly the young subaltern, Piers Dorian Isambard Jenkins. Those are not their real names, by the way. As a private, Jones was content to lay doggo, an attitude common to most private soldiers in the war. He thoroughly enjoyed 
the companionship of his fellow soldiers. How did his unit fit into the regiment? Regiments, some people don't realise, recruit and train soldiers and prepare battalions for fighting. There are about a thousand men in each battalion. But unlike the German army, they do not fight as regiments. Battalions are deployed by the British Army and they rarely meet up, except perhaps back at base. The 38th Welsh Division in the First World War was unusual in having a complement of 12 battalions, all drawn from the three Welsh regiments, the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, the Welsh Regiment and the South Wales Borderers. In other divisions, the makeup would be very varied. For example, a Devonshire battalion fighting side by side with a Yorkshire battalion. But regiments, although they don't fight together, do teach recruits to be proud of the regiment and its battle honours. So there is a family feeling among members of the regiment, even if they never meet. But it's no more than that. At Mamets, Siegfried Sassoon was an officer in the 1st Battalion, Royal Welsh Fusiliers. He was part of 7th Division, quite independent of the Welsh Division. They attacked Mamets Wood before the main onslaught by the Welsh Division. Robert Graves was an officer in the 2nd Battalion, Royal Welsh Fusiliers, part of the 33rd Division. They were engaged in the fighting around Mamets after its capture. So they were quite close, give or take a few weeks, uh, uh, together uh, around Mamets. But David Jones in the 15th Battalion, 38th Division, would have met neither Graves or Sassoon during the war. In any case, there was a huge gulf between officers and men, which would have prevented any communication if they had met. After the war, Jones did meet Sassoon, but they had little to talk about. David Jones was a private all through the war. Friends say he was offered a stripe, but turned it down. Like most privates, he preferred to lie doggo and do what he was told. Most contacts with officers would have been with young platoon or company commanders in his own battalion. Imperences suggest that he had a good relationship with them. Most officers were from English public schools, even in Welsh regiments, and most would be English-speaking. Indeed, all orders were issued in the English language. David Jones was born and brought up in Brockley, Kent, now in Greater London, with a Welsh father and an English mother. He knew little Welsh, although he loved the language and struggled to learn it. And he became very knowledgeable about Welsh mythology. And that and some Welsh phrases are incorporated into his work. For the five years before the outbreak of war, he attended art school. So his background and his education would be very different from that of other soldiers in the same unit. His two closest army friends, one Welsh, one English, were like him, middle class. Nevertheless, it's true to say that he enjoyed the friendship of all his companions whether they were miners or people of other occupations. You mentioned before the terrain of the Somme battlefield. For anyone who has not visited the site, can you describe the topography of that area, and in particular Mamet's Wood? And would you describe the attack, which is the basis for part seven of In Parenthesis? The Battle of the Somme was fought over rolling ground north of the River Somme. David Jones likened it to the downs of southern England. The Germans had three lines of defence, all heavily fortified, 
and generally rising tier and tier up the hillside. The British attacked on a 15-mile front on the 1st of July. Thousands of troops were mown down near their own trenches. Others were held up on barbed wire in front of the German line. Only in the south of the front was there any notable success. Mamet's village, just short of Mamet's wood, was captured, and the front line near Freecourt was breached. There were 60,000 British casualties on that day. On the second day, the 7th Division advanced towards Mamet's wood, an attack in which Siegfried Sassoon took part, but it was held up short of the wood. It was decided that the army should regroup and concentrate the British attack on a two-mile front east of Mamet's wood. For this to have any chance of success, Mamet's wood, the largest wood on the Somme, would first have to be captured. The task fell to the newly arrived 38th Welsh Division and the 17th Northern Division. Mamet's wood was, and still is, nearly a mile wide and a mile deep. It lay on a slight spur on rising ground in front of the German second line from which it could easily be reinforced. The first attack on the 7th of July was a pincher movement, the Northern Division advancing on the western flank and the Welsh the eastern flank. They were to meet in the middle of the wood. This was a badly conceived plan as both divisions would be moving in a line parallel to the German trenches with no protection whatsoever on the flank. The attack failed. Cynics say it would have failed with no Germans in the wood because of the thickness of the undergrowth. A second attack, the main attack, on 10th of July was by the Welsh division. The plan had little subtleties. A frontal attack on the wood by the Welsh division with a weakened northern division supporting on the left. The rest of the British army, preparing for the next phase of battle, more or less stood still and all eyes were focused on the Welsh. The wood was occupied by crack German troops, including units of the Prussian Guard. By contrast, the Welsh soldiers were volunteers with no previous experience of offensive action. The frontal attack began on unpromising ground, down a steep chalk cliff and up rising ground straight into machine gun and artillery fire. There was no support at all on the right flank. But after two days of fierce fighting in thick undergrowth, with high casualties on both sides, the Germans withdrew, leaving the wood in the hands of the tired Welsh. The Welsh division lost heavily, 4,000 casualties in five days, including 600 killed and a like number missing. They had succeeded against all expectations, but because of the failure of an early attack on the 7th of July, no honours came their way. Instead, the survivors marched dejectedly away and took no further part in the Battle of the Somme. Only later, when the difficulties of woodland fighting became general knowledge, were the achievements of the Welsh Division recognised. A year later, they fought alongside the British Guards Division at Passchendaele and received high praise. Is there now a great interest in Wales in the Battle for Mammoth's Wood in 1916? Uh, yes, but when I first went to Mammoth's Wood in the 1960s, I was a lone visitor. But when I visited recently, there were coachloads of schoolchildren from Wales. Much of this is due to school curriculum and interest being shown in the war generally, but a focus 
on the Somme is the memorial to the Welsh Division, erected in 1987. This was partly the inspiration of a Tom Price who had fought at Mametz as a sergeant. He was taken back after an interval of 67 years and was very moved by the experience, but disappointed that there was no memorial to that historic battle. He took it up on return and found a ready response in the South Wales branch of the Western Front Association. As a result, a superb memorial was erected on a site donated by the owner of the wood. The memorial, a defiant blood-red dragon on a stone plinth, stands on high ground overlooking the southern edge of the wood. It is now an official monument maintained by the War Graves Commission and it attracts a lot of visitors. You were there actually at the, the unveiling of it. Yes, yeah, I gave it a little spiel, yeah. Right. And, and you met the sculptor? Patterson. Patterson. Patterson does make Welsh dragons on buildings. Right. Actually, uh, yeah. a specialist in yeah. uh, forged steel. Mm-hmm. Where is he from? Is he South Wales or yeah, Cardiff? Yes, uh, yeah, Cardiff. Yeah. Mm. Um, well, he made a marvellous job of that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's got about six coats of enamel on it, and mm-hmm. it was fired, so it's like glass. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it'll last. It is a good dragon. Mm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and the other memorial, I mean, it's, there are, I mean, Lutchen's doing the, the Tiapval yeah. thing, and the Ulster Tower are mm. very representative, and those Canadian ones. Yeah. Is it yeah. Newfoundland Park with the elk? Yes, yes, the, yes, the, 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 yeah. yes, yes. And yeah. then that, that one is just mm. a Welsh dragon. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's so distinctive. Yeah. And, I mean, the position of it, it's just so evocative, isn't it? It's just... It's on top of the cliff. Yes. So you're looking down on the wood uh, and you can see the whole of the southern front on which the uh, attack took place. Yeah. And, I mean, they located these memorials soon after the war, close to the battlefields with Tiepval and some of the There's Canadian... The Elster, the, yes, Canadian Obviously, Elster Tower. Elster Tower. That, yeah. they, they were, that was built later, the Elster Tower. Right. And I think it was the fact that that was there that made Tom Price say, where's the, where's the Welsh one? Yeah. But it is a memorial place there. There aren't any graves around. It, it, you, can, you can see from uh, the memorial Flatiron Cemetery, which is on the Flatiron Copse, uh, is mentioned in, in, in parentheses. Named because of the, the uh, because shape. It's a, uh, that's right, the shape of a uh, copse shaped like a Flatiron. Yes. And you can see that from yeah. the... Uh, um, but the memorial is placed near the trenches that Jones and the others would have attacked from? Yeah, in front of where they, in front so, of the trenches. So they'd have already descended down the cliff. They would uh, get out of their trenches, move towards the cliff, and so the memorial is there at the top of the cliff. So right. So they would be attacking so past, them, past w- it. When you arrive at that memorial, um, say in the car or in mm. the, the tour, tour bus... Ah. You, you've got that sort of... Yeah, well, the bus... The, climb the, now. You do, because the uh, the bus is, is below the cliff. Yes. Um, so in reverse yeah. to, to how the Welsh soldiers would have... That's right. Yes. That's right. And and you get such a view there of, of that descent. Mm. That's mm. right. And then the, the attack anyway is across that open ground. That's right. And the yeah. trees that you see are, as far as you can tell, 
the, the, the same boundary of, of the wood. That's exactly the same. Right. Yes, that the wood is the actual shape of the wood hasn't changed mm. at all. And there are still traces within the wood because uh, trenches were all ploughed up afterwards, but you can't plough up in, inside a wood. Yeah. So you could, when I first went, I could still find strip trench. Uh, right. Uh, and um, line VYOK, the, the, the line of the trenches can still be seen. The, the one which um, Jones uses That's in his right. maps right. and. Yes. Hmm, and and play, plays so much of a part in, in the progress of that battle. That's right. Yeah. yeah. You said you presented actually at that unveiling, and that must have been quite emotional. Perhaps not for you, but no, for, no. for some of the people oh, yes. there. Oh, yes, yes, about 300 people there. Hmm. And they were. Relatives. Uh, yes, they were, well, there were some survivors. Right. Because mm. it was unveiled in the early 80s, was it? 1987. Yeah. Yes, there were about six of them there. There were, there were however many there were, a dozen or half a dozen, like, a few of them, about half of them, had been in the Welsh Division at Mamemet's Wood. Mm. Others had fought nearby and were perhaps in the artillery. Yes. Uh, um, different, different division, mm. that, but quite interested. And was, is it Tom Price? Tom Price. And so he was there actually at the unveiling no, as well? No, he died just... He was there for the design of it, uh, the construction of it, and then he died. Mm. So he'd, he'd seen it before it was in place? He may have seen the dragon itself in Cardiff. It was exhibited in... I'm not sure. Mm. I'm not sure. Yeah, but um, he said that he, yeah, when he wrote to me, Tom Price, you know, before he went to my man, he says that... No one could hear the orders you were shouting. Yes. And in, in parentheses it says he opens his mouth so wide you can hardly hear him. Mm. Or almost hear him or something like that. Yes. You can almost hear him. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's... Uh, yeah. Um, I think the, the undergrowth. And that's the... that... Uh, well, uh, artillery. Hitting oh, the trees. Even as you're approaching, you see. Yes. And the artillery is hitting the trees. So you've got tremendous... Uh, right, so, so not even just the... the you've got the, the gunfire, the ricochets... The, uh, the woodland. The tension and noise cannot be described. What with the traction of shells through the air and the noise of explosions all around it, it was almost impossible to give verbal orders. And we had to rely on hand signals for directing any move. This is on the open ground. Men were falling in all directions. It was a nice chap on it, was um, and this is Sergeant Price. Price describing Mamet's Wood. Yes, he's, he's, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was in the um, the Battalion, 13th Welsh, 2nd Rondo. I met him quite a few times. Uh, yes. First of all, we corresponded, but then when the memorial was being built, I met him quite a few times. Did getting to know David Jones have any impact on you? Yes, I'm not exaggerating when I say that he changed the course of my readings and my writings. When I first met him, I could, I suppose, be likened to Private Watkin of in parenthesis, who knew everything about the Neath Rugby 15. By the end of the friendship, I'd been promoted to Lance Corporal and Iron Lewis of in parenthesis, aware of Geoffrey of Monmouth and his cooked histories, and Tung Sean Catty, but with additional knowledge of 20th century art and literature. Do you see in parenthesis as more than just straight reporting? Certainly. Uh, this is a great prose poem and a landmark in 20th century literature, where heightening prose gives way to great lyrical passages full of biblical, Arthurian and other literary allusions. But as I've said before, Jones told me in conversation 
that there is little in in parentheses that is not straight reporting. And when I use the subtitle in parentheses as straight reporting for a monograph, I was merely echoing Jones's word. But it does need qualifying. What Jones said to me in his first letter was this. In the book, I was using as poetical material my own physical experiences, not an exact record of a given battle and the terrain over which it was fought. But it was a great help for my type of writing to check out the details, if only to give a positive framework to the experiences described. In short, Jones used his experiences, backed by later evidence, as a frame on which to weave his poetry. Almost everything in in parenthesis, however imaginative it might be, and however wonderful the imagery, is rooted in actual experience. But of course, the book would be nothing if it was just a string of facts. Imagination, imagery, and poetic construction are everything. Thank you very much for <laughs> telling us about David Jones and about your correspondence and meeting him. Thank you very much, Colin.